Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer turned psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. We have kind of a unique story coming up today, and we have our special guest, Adam Cupping. He is the Chief Operating Officer at Zeal, which is a web and mobile apps development company. Adam is unique because he started out as an actor, and I think he still is acting. He'll tell us more about that. But he's also done marketing for a large coffee company up in the Pacific Northwest. And now he's doing chief operating officer duties at a tech company. So let's introduce Adam to the show. Hi, Adam. Hello. How are you? I'm glad. Hey, all the listeners out there, all of you. <laughs> Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, this my is pleasure. so much fun. Yeah. I you know, I I've been I the nerd in me has been thinking all about uh Captain America because you have that uh -huh. background here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So, yeah, uh, I'm gonna get to that part, but you know, I mean I was like curious about being an actor and marketing and then working with techies all this time, but let's start out by hearing a little bit about Zeal. What is Zeal? Tell us more about the Zeal and what you do there. Yeah, so we're a principle-driven process-focused consultancy. So our specialty is in custom web and mobile application development. Uh, our focus is very much on how process drives success. So delivery is obviously a very important thing, but delivery in all of, all of its facets. So that might be training and leveling up on new technologies for less experienced team members or even highly experienced team members. It, of course, might be just the delivery of features, fixing, scaling, and what have you. So our team is relatively small. We're under 20. And we deploy people remotely into companies and help kind of lead their teams into a better way of operating um, in a very hands-on way. Interesting. Wow, there's so much to explore there. But um, so what do you do as chief operating officer? What's your role? It's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> everything with only yeah, 20 right. people, right? You do everything. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I feel really lucky because, uh, you know, the beauty is that when uh, a process is driving and principles are defining what you should and shouldn't be doing, you, a person might be left in my situation with a very narrow window of things that they should be focusing on, which I think is a good thing. So a lot of what I do is business development um, and evangelism advocacy for process and principle-driven development as a whole. And so I speak a lot um, nationally and internationally on topics such as confidence and team development and team dynamics and how to use the soft side of life and apply it into the highly technical logical side of life in a way that makes it highly effective and lucrative overall. So I spend a lot of time focusing my energy on that. Interesting. Okay. So I wanted to go right into this because your background is not typical. So tell us first of all, you know, you're an actor, right? So what draws you to high tech? 
Yeah. So I started as an actor uh, when I went to school, I went to uh, college to be an actor and I worked uh, for a relatively large regional theater company that's based out of a quite small town in Oregon called the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Right. And while I was there, I, you know, I learned a lot as an actor, I learned a lot about just general human psychology. You know, as you might presume as an actor, your job is very much about simulating and replicating the responses and reactions that a human being, a fictitious, more often than not human being would have to a given situation. So you learn a lot about the kind of human physicality and the, the kind of just general patterns that they follow in life. And I was really fascinated with that stuff. I loved it a lot. Uh, however, the profession of acting is a really tough one to say the least. And uh, when I was working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, there was a gentleman there that I was asking, he was, I, I don't know, he was like in his forties. And at the time I was in my, um, I was in my early twenties and he was just telling me that, you know, his life was basically every three months. He didn't know what he was going to do next. And that, w that was the thing that wasn't for me. I knew that I wanted a family and I wanted to be able to settle down and I wanted to have some financial stability. And so I, while I was totally in love with the art form, the profession was just not for me. So I made the migration from that into marketing, which seemed like a logical sort of path, like, you know, kind of psychology to psychology. And that really worked out um, as far as being able to take what I knew and had learned as an actor um, doing, you know, many dozens of shows to what and how somebody might interpret something that they saw visually, either through an ad or something such as a television or radio campaign, something along those lines. And so that, that actually made a lot more sense than not. And then the, being in marketing, you're dealing a lot with computer systems, whether it's website design or just very minimal application-like development. Maybe you've got a, a PHP-driven form on a website, a little bit of JavaScript, stuff like that. And so that took me down the path of websites and then web apps. And then years later, here we are as a yes. application company. So like slowly meandering over yeah. to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and as an actor, I mean, I think the biggest benefit I've had so far as an actor is I'm very comfortable in front of other people. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, there's a natural stage element uh, to present, you know, giving a talk of some kind, whereas, you know, again, as an actor, as a stage actor, which is all I was, uh, same deal, right? You have an audience and you have to relay a message. You have to communicate that through to them. And so it was very natural for me to fall into that role in our company, uh, to do much more that I was very drawn to it for sure. Um, giving talks and whatnot. And, and you'll find that if you, you could find a lot of my talks online, but if you ever have the opportunity to see me give a talk in person, there, it is very, I very intentional in making it as engaging as I can. Something that, you know, you you physically need to respond to. So I, it's how I bring in the things from stage training into into this world. Oh, and that is such a relief as an audience member. I've seen talk <laughs> and I've been to a lot of academic talks too, and you're just trying to keep your head from yeah. down and onto your chest. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's some really simple stuff. And, and I think, it, I, I feel like this is a kind of the next wave of stuff that I'd love to explore more with people who would, who are, who would like to give a talk maybe at a meetup or even just for their team, you know, there's some really simple things you can do 
that will engage your audience. And I think a lot of people just don't even know what that is. And your, even if your audience is an audience of two or three people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would hope that more people could do some very basic things inside of a talk to just keep the audience engaged. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one of them. And that is find something small and physical that you make the, per, the, the audience do. Um, the unfortunate nature of kind of a sit and lecture style of talk is that you're relying on people to stay engaged auditorily. Um, and you're also relying on the slides, you know, activating kind of the visual, the kind of visual sensory component of, you know, learning, but most people are kinesthetic learners. And so most talks in that sit and lecture style are not designed for their style of learning. Um, even if you're an introvert, even if you're not somebody that wants to jump up and down and throw your hands up in the air, uh, you're still a very physical learner. And so a quick way to do that is come up with a simple physical thing you can use to engage your audience. Even if it's raise your hand, if stand up, if, um, have people move in towards the center. Um, sometimes you'll see that I'll ask people, you know, put your laptops away and I want you to just scooch in a couple of chairs, just something as simple as that engages the kind of physical nature of, the learn the learning side of the brain and it actually makes people who are very kinesthetic engaged more in what you're saying even if you go back to a, a sit and lecture model interesting yeah we're that all comes from stage back. acting yeah yeah i know we're gonna get you on here another episode to talk more about this i think today's topic i was hoping to get to something else but uh yeah um well let me um let me ask you a question. I mean, I guess you kind of just, you, you did sort of talk about this, but, you know, the nerd factor, uh, you know, you're bringing in uh, your stage acting and you're dealing with people who are quite uh, perhaps differently oriented. How do you make that, a, you know, a positive, successful interaction from the different perspectives? And I can already tell, like I said, you've got the Captain America looming behind you there, that there must be some connection that you have on some of these um, common interests that some of the nerds would have as well. How do you, how do you bridge that or, or make those connections? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, yeah, sometimes it just comes down to simple things like uh, identifying as quickly as you can. What do you share? What do you know? And, and sometimes there's some basic stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. arguably it can, might even be cliche, like, like family. I mean, we all right. have parents. We, <laughs> we, them, we have them. Most often you have siblings. Um, and so, you know, finding, a way to build rapport quickly might just be as simple as inter- maybe not introducing yourself with, hi, my name's Adam and I have a brother, <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, but even simple things like, you know, find a unique story that you can tell consistently that isn't overwhelming is quick to get to, but it's kind of, but it might be a conversation starter. You know, those, those things I, you can keep in the back of your mind and use from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, Semi-related to this is I used to teach an auditioning class uh, years and years ago to high school students, and it was the seven keys to a successful audition. Well, five of the seven keys had nothing to do with the actual audition, you know, the, the saying of the lines or any of that right. in the room. It had to do with what you did before, what you did after, what you did in the middle. And one of the key points was figure out something that's short, sweet, and unique about you and it doesn't have to be audacious and crazy. It can be just something unique. And you can think of five different ways that you can present that one thing, whether it's, you know, through a vehicle of a sibling or 
you know, in conversation about something you did recently with a spouse or partner. Um, and it is a way that you can sort of catalog in the back of your mind if you're very logical of, oh, I have this sort of short repertoire of, you know, um, small talk bits that I could, you know, kind of weave my way in so that I don't end up in this uncomfortable, you know, I have nothing to contribute, you know, component um, in the conversation or what have you. Wow, so, preparing, yes. I yeah, like so, I mean, a lot of it is, a lot of that is, you know, is, like you said, prepare, is just think, just thinking through it first. Mm -hmm. um, I know that a, there's a lot of introverts that have to think through and, like, map out when I walk into a crowded room, how do I, you know, you know, I'm, my first, my step one is find the exit. Step two is find the bathroom. Step three is find the, you know, the water cooler or whatever it is. You know, I mean, I have to map all that out of my mind so that I don't walk in overwhelmed. And uh, that, that might be a way to do that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, um, it does. And I mean, I, you know, I'm just going to put it in. So the acting repertoire, you have these, they can just pull out when you need them and uh, mm -hmm. flex in the moment, depending on what's coming up, what you do. Well, you know, I think this sort of brings us to our, the, you know, the crux of our talk today, because one of the things that comes up a lot for technical people is that, um, you know, they're really, you know, solid, expert, confident on their technical expertise, because that's what they've been doing, you know, and, and that's what they're valued for and everything. But then either they have to lead a team or, you know, put into some kind of role where they're out there doing uh, something that requires those soft skills. And suddenly we've gone from being ultra confident in our technical expertise and what we're valued for to suddenly being told, no, you have to be valued for something completely different. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you have this great method for building confidence, I think, in a way that is really appealing to technical people. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Sure. Uh, so it's called mechanical confidence, and it, mm -hmm. it does come from my time as an actor. So the probably the two most common questions I would get as an actor is, how do you memorize all the lines, and do you ever oh, feel yeah, safe? Yeah. Right? And the answer to both is process-related. So we take for granted, I, I would imagine all of you listening already know that, you know, if you're an actor, you, you rehearse. And you might rehearse, you might not know that you rehearse for many weeks. In fact, I would say the standard uh, amount of time is, you know, upwards of four to six weeks, maybe even eight weeks worth of rehearsal. Well, the only reason that you do that, the, the ultimate goal of doing that is to embed the movement, the text, all of the elements into your body so that it becomes automatic on opening night and for the run of the show. That's the mm -hmm. only reason why you do it. So you're kind of like the kinesthetic learner in a talk is every actor, whether they fully recognize it or not, is going to have a process. Every musician will have a process. And I believe every developer, uh, technical person will also have a process. Maybe they don't even realize they have one that creates this confidence that ingrains itself into the body. And as a result of it, things become automatic, even if they don't realize it. And so back to, you know, the two common questions of how do you memorize all the lines? Well, it's the rehearsal process. And do you ever feel stage fright is absolutely. In fact, even to this day, and I've done over a hundred stage productions, mm -hmm. you know, right before I'll walk on stage, there'll be butterflies in the stomach. That is totally normal and totally real. But what I know now is that having done it so many times that it, it has become mechanical, it's become automatic. And so there are a few very distinct things I will do before I give any talk 
that are designed specifically to kind of put me into the automated state of mind so that I can deliver whatever I need to deliver well and, and be able to kind of prepare around that. And again, it's a very logical, very mechanical, very procedural thing. It's not something that is, you know, I, I felt it and the feeling just drove me to be great at it. it it's, <laughs> that, that's the byproduct of it, but it absolutely is not the reason why, you know, you mm -hmm. feel that way. It's, it's a mechanical, logical, procedural thing. Okay, so how do you get that? Yeah, how so- How one get that? Sure, so the, the first step is to acknowledge that habits are incredibly powerful. So there's a, in the talk that actually you saw, I, I tell the story of a, a gentleman named Eugene Polly. Eugene Polly was a uh, neurology patient in, I believe it was the early 60s. And at the time, we were familiar that the brain had two major components when it came to memory. The first was short term, the second was more long term. And the predominant mode of thinking was that everything in the short term, certain bits and pieces of that that we need for either survival or whatnot would move its way into long term memory and become something that was more automated. Um, mm -hmm. And so we could tap back into that at a later date, maybe years and years later, that kind of long-term memory might pop itself back up. Well, at the time, it was believed that the approach was very direct. It was always short-term, always short-term, then into long-term. However, Eugene was an interesting case. So he had gone abroad, traveled abroad, and he had con contracted a bacteria that damaged the short-term memory uh, area of his brain. So he had a memory of no more than about 90 seconds, very, very short. And so for the remaining about 15 years of his life, he never knew he was older than about 59 years old. He had 90 second memory, very, very short. Well, as you can imagine, as you're getting older, as, as did he, that conditions, life conditions are going to change, whether it's physical when it comes to health or whatnot, um, or if it's just situational, you got to move or you know, some other factors, you know, put you into another geographic situation, what have you. And so there's a real problem here. And the problem was, you know, he never knew he was older than 59 years old, even when he was 70. But what was interesting was um, he and his wife moved. And when they did, uh, there was a consistent routine. And that consistent routine is that he'd get up, the alarm would go off, he'd get up, walk into the kitchen, make bacon and eggs and breakfast. And uh, without fail, he could do that. Now, if you asked him, where was the kitchen or draw me the layout of the house, he couldn't tell you. If you said, can you tell me where the bread's located in the kitchen? He couldn't tell you. Where's the fridge? Where in the fridge are the eggs? He couldn't tell you. But every single morning, he would get up, automatically walk into the kitchen as if he had known where it was all along, make what he needed to make every single time without fail, and then go back into his bedroom. But again, if you asked him to map any of it, he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Relatedly, as he aged, he and his wife would take walks and it was about 45 minutes around the neighborhood and whatnot. And as he was doing it, you know, uh, she would go with him for maybe seemingly obvious reasons that he had no idea what had happened the 90 seconds prior. Mm -hmm. Now, if you would have asked him the question, can you draw me a map of your walk or where you went or better yet that you went on a walk, he couldn't do it. He couldn't tell you any of those mm -hmm. things. However, one day his wife was sick in bed. He got up went on a walk, went on the same route that he couldn't even tell you about or mm. that he did, came back home without issue. So what they discovered was that the 
an understanding that short-term to long-term memory was di a direct correlation and there was a singular path, what they realized was that habits could bypass that short-term memory block. And habits, the habit of walking into the kitchen, getting the same breakfast, taking the same route, that could bypass short-term memory, conscious memory, and can move its way into subconscious long-term memory without needing it in the first place. So the moral of this is that you can train yourself through habit and practice to create a, a confident routine without ever being consciously confident in yourself. That, oh, there are, that there are things you can do that create and replicate the success scenario that you want as a developer or a technical person that will create that, that sense of like, I know how to do this, even if you can't consciously identify for yourself what it is about the routine that makes it work every single time. Okay. So like for people skills, you know, leading a team, running a meeting, um, you know, those might be some things that you could figure out, you know, what works and then just start doing them. Yeah. So a simple, a, a simple example might be, so let's say you are a CTO or you are a technical leader. And you have the monthly responsibility of meeting with your team or uh, possibly your, you know, your C-level executive team and delivering them a report of the last month. Let's say that's the example. That okay. would freak a lot of people out. <laughs> Just the thought of it freaks me out. And I've done yeah. it a few times, right? So uh, to create some confidence around that situation... Uh, one of your first steps would be to, con to identify what about the situation you can consistently control. As an example, where the meeting happens, where you sit in the room, uh, if you bring water, what water bottle you're going to use. It might seem mundane and totally unrelated, but what you're doing is you're creating, like, in a play, like an actor on the stage in a play, is you're creating consistency around you. The result of the consistency creates a form of habit that triggers the type of res emotional response and situational response, the confidence that you want to have. So uh, if you can control environment as an example, control where you sit in that environment and the conditions around it. Um, other simple things can be if you have to deliver a report and you have to deliver a printed version of that report as an example, do your best to create the same type, right? using templates can be a really powerful tool to get to that same result. Mm -hmm. If you meet with your team and you uh, are meant to present as in stand up in front of them, you can practice the model of standing up in front of a group, either with another group, or you can even do it like you would rubber ducking. So um, you know, when people are taught pair programming, they might be taught the concept of using a rubber mm -hmm. duck, right? To talk to the rubber duck. Do the same thing. Talk to your dog. Talk to your cat. It sounds stupid. It sounds crazy, but it absolutely can work if you do it consistently. Because what you're doing is you're just ingraining the physical, the physicality of the action into your body, so that you're at least chipping away at the 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 uncertainty that's created by doing something that's totally outside of your comfort zone and realm. So that's just, so you know, interesting. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that. Now I'm thinking of how much more I could have done to build my confidence in this situation, given what you just said, but um, I gave a talk, it was a Sue talk 
not like a TED talk, but it had to be memorized essentially word for word. And it was about 12 minutes. And that's, that's not the way I usually do presentations. Usually it's much more extemporaneous and with an outline and, and all this, but they wanted it memorized. And, you know, we're talking about how do you memorize 12 minutes worth of lines for you? You're like, Oh yeah, no problem. But for me, that was just horrifying. Um, and I had to do exactly what you said, which was practice, you know, the rubber ducking in front of everyone driving the car. But the fact that I said it so many times and then practiced the transitions and everything was that when I got up on stage, it just flowed because I wasn't even thinking about it. It just was mechanically sort of ingrained already in there. So um, I practiced a little bit about what you're talking about and it really worked uh, having that habit because the, the people who I've actually coached since who didn't practice it so many times, you know, that th these are the ones who get derailed in the middle and forget. Yeah. So, uh, I've never given a Ted talk, but the one element of giving a Ted talk that scares me is that they make you stand in the middle of the dot the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Am... <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, right. I can imagine for an actor, you're like, right. what? You're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I, so I'm a very kinesthetic person. So for me, the trick to memorization comes down to mapping the the movement to the line. Mm. So when I can create, so in in um in stage work, it's called blocking, and that is you know lines to movement on stage, and even within the model of blocking, the stage is broken up into a grid that everybody, all actors know about. So you have downstage, which is towards the audience. You have upstage, which is back towards the very back of the room. Then you have stage left and stage right. The other thing that actors know and everybody that works in theater is that the stage left or stage right is from the perspective of the actor, not of the audience. So if they mean from the audience, they say house left or house right. Just okay. some little terminology. <laughs> but because that's all ingrained in all of us as actors, that's the stuff they teach in high school. Yeah, or very, you know, hopefully not by college. I mean, definitely in college. Um, there, you're eliminating this sort of language. You're creating this common language around how to talk about something. Okay, so that's the start. Then the next thing is I can use that to to draw in where I'm going to move based on each and every line. And the way I rehearse my lines and practice my lines starts with in my house, like in my living room or wherever. Um, I will create a small version of the stage. I don't map it out or anything, but in my mind, I create a small version of the stage and I will map the physical movement and practice the physical movement to the line. I don't sit down and go, the line is, you know, the, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Okay, say it back, the quick brown. I don't do that. I go, okay, no, I move to my right and I map into my body the physicality that goes into it. The second thing is especially when it comes to stage work is motivation. So if you can bind to the line, why the character says it, then it's easier kind of like if you've ever heard of the memory competitions, the people that memorize like, you know, 3000 decks of cards in 14 <laughs> seconds, you know, that randomly plays and they can go through all of them. They're like, you know, mm -hmm. ace of spades, queen of hearts, you know, and they do the whole thing. Um, more often than not, they use a, they use a technique where they visualize a, a room or a landscape and they, map the card to bits visual elements in the landscape the same thing as applying you're just doing mm -hmm. physically so you could do the same sort of work um, for yourself if you're trying to memorize something is just create find, figure out are you kinesthetic and if so then you can map it to some physicality well this really is creative thinking sort of you know literally kind of out of the box thinking because 
I think I, well, the underlying theme I'm hearing is figure out what you can control. And in, in general, what you can control is what helps you build confidence to begin with, right? I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's the things that you can't control that are often scary. But when you do find even the smallest things like which water bottle you bring, you know, I mean, or if you can go to the room ahead of time or, you know, if you can have them come to your office to have the meeting instead of go to theirs, you know, there are so many things you can do just to build your confidence uh, in having uh, these perhaps uh, new and different, slightly uncomfortable interactions with others when you're dealing with uh, moving into leadership positions. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and I know that, you know, a common criticism is, well, you know, half the list of what you just said, I don't have control over, you know, they always mm -hmm. want me to meet in my room or yeah. they always change it. So uh, something that's relatable for me is I give a lot of conference talks, oftentimes the same talk for, you know, many different conferences. Mm -hmm. And so each venue is now changing, every audience yeah. is changing, size Perfect. of room, okay. right? So that now changes every time. So the question then is, how do I create the consistency amidst all the variety. Mm -hmm. For me, I have a warm-up routine. It takes me about five minutes. I do it right before I give a talk and I always do it at the very back of a room. doesn't make any noise, but that is the thing I can control. So mm -hmm. even though the room changes, I can control that. Similarly, if you're giving a conference talk, clarifying some simple things like, is the monitor that's got my notes on it on the left or the right? and practice with it on the left or the right. Um, yep. So that there's consistency for yourself of the things you can control within the situation. So if, again, you, you, know, you are bound by a manager or an executive mm -hmm. that is always changing the situation on you, then control the thing that happens right before the situation and you will foster the same sort of confidence so that that new thing doesn't rattle you as much, even yeah. if you can't control That's it. Fine. Yeah, and this is something that I actually run into a lot when I'm coaching executives, for example, is, you know, or especially technical people, it's like, well, what do you do and um, advance the meeting? They're like, I don't know, I just show up, or they're thinking about the content of the meeting, you know, like, okay, well, right. we're going to talk about this project. So they're prepared on the details of that project. And you're like, no, no, no. The part that I'm talking is about you. How do you want to come across? What can, you know, are these things, and you're giving another angle of this. What can you do to set yourself up so that you will come across as confident and prepared in the way that you need to be during right. that event, uh, no matter what happens? If, you know, the chairs are all mixed up uh, and different people are in the meeting room than you expected, you still have that control. And uh, I think the key thing here is this is really a simple one, but carve out a little bit of time. Like you said, five minutes, right? Uh -huh. uh, instead of being back to back. Make sure you have, you know, that little window before the meeting to get yourself together the way you need to. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, that's really big. I mean, you have no idea, Adam, how much that can help people. I mean, just the, you know, even adding in a little five minute routine before uh, meetings. And uh, I hope our listeners and viewers can take that with them to say, you know, it doesn't take a lot. You know, it's like you have to like go back to school and, you know, get a degree in something else. It's like, no, you just have to make a routine for five minutes before the meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. So, all right. So you're currently writing a book. And I mean, I don't know, is that about this kind of thing or is it about something else? What's your book about? Yeah. So the, the book is a, um, is, is very, is a distant thing, but I'm really excited researching it. So okay. uh, we'll see if this comes out in the next year or the next 10. We'll find out. I, I, I don't <laughs> okay. know yet. 
I like that kind of a commitment. That's really good. I'm going to remember that. That's right. But it, it's related to all of this. So what I realized in, in our work as a consultancy is we work all, everything we do is with other technical teams and product teams. Uh, and so there are consistent things that consistent pain points, consistent habits that either form or don't form negative and positive. And I've always found it quite fascinating. And this is one of the many reasons why we decided to be very process oriented and I don't mean dogmatic in an agile process, scrum process manner. Mm-hmm. I mean that process creates the replication that creates the success you want. So if it means that you're developing an entirely new process for your team and yourself that creates the right sort of success, awesome. Do it. Absolutely do it. But don't presume chaos will get you there. Um, you will create a process one way or the other, positive or negative. And that the kind of power of process and the power of that feeding into this mechanical confidence is really fascinating to me. And so the book I am currently researching is speaking to technical leaders, CTOs, and interviewing them on the good, the bad, the ugly. And what, my, what I'm going to do out of that is extract out what are the procedural lessons that came out of it. Um, instead of just the, I'll never talk to that person again, or, you know, I, I, I'm horrible at leading teams sort of stuff is extracting, but what of that did you discover procedurally worked for you through that journey? And how does all of that form into a model that can create confidence from a leadership standpoint? I think that a lot of CTOs and tech leaders, they start more often than not as just straight technicians. And there's this sort of natural ascension that goes up into maybe the CTO role. And more often than not, CTOs start their, their tenure as a CTO from, a very, from an implementation standpoint, like a, a highest level technical leader. But as most CTOs that are experienced doing this know, is that very quickly they realize that they're more, it's much more about culture management and culture definition and developing and fostering the principles that will guide your team so that they can maintain that autonomy and self-reliance. And those are the things that I think we, that oftentimes we see that they, they stumble with is, but aren't I supposed to be highly technical versus uh, yes, but now my role in the technicality is the technical development of the principles, the technical development of the methodologies, the technical mm-hmm. development of our culture. That's my new job. And so helping foster that through the mechanics of it is, is really what this is. My research is about. And if that turns into a book, which I really hope it does or some format thereof, then that's what it will be. Excellent. So if people want to reach out to you after the show, how can they get in touch with you? Yes, that would be great. So you can find me on Twitter. Um, My name is unique. I don't know someone else like me. So it's Adam Cuppy, C-U-P-P-Y. So you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. And then you can email me at adam at codingzeal.com. So that's C-O-D-I-N-G-Z as in zebra, E-A-L.com. Excellent. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. So, well, this has been really interesting. I mean, you might get a lot of calls because you've talked about so many different things. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I hope that uh, people have taken some good lessons away. Any last words of wisdom? Um, no, I think just... Thing, I, if nothing else, I would charge everybody to just take a moment and really reflect on what is 
what are the things that you do that create the successes that you want to have? And what are the things that you do that create the failures that you want to avoid? And I think just thinking through that, just taking the time, call it meditation, call it simple reflection. It's going to expose some simple logical approaches that you can consistently take to get there. And the last thing I would say is um, if, if you have any questions about any of this, whether it's to participate in my, my research or simply just to explore the meaning of any of the things I'm talking about, uh, I, I'm more than happy to chat about it. I love talking about this stuff. So. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Well, it'll be a great conversation. I can already see that going on. So thank you, Adam, for being a guest. It's been a pleasure to have you here today. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much. And thanks to our viewers and listeners. We're at reinventingnerds.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.